Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Dark Art Society podcast. My name's Chet. I'm your host. Today we have an interview that I was so excited to do, a guest that I was so excited to get on, Mitch Horowitz, who is an occult scholar, a, a great writer, and um, a uh, uh, just a kind of a brilliant guy. And uh, I've been into his reading his books lately, into his writings, watching his lectures on YouTube. Mitch is a great writer. He's got a really good book out right now called Daydream Believer. Um, he's 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 written a bunch of books. Uh, Occult America is really good. The Miracle Club is really good. Um, those are the ones I've read. Uh, but get Daydream Believer. Check it out. It's really great if you're interested in, in uh, mind manifestation and stuff like that. So yeah, really excited to have him on. We had a really excellent conversation. I was a little nervous I was going to screw up because he's a smart dude and I'm kind of a dummy. So I I don't think I uh, made too much of a fool of myself, <laughs> uh, but really great conversation. Super fun, super fun. Loved it. And I think you'll enjoy it too. Um, so that's coming up. I What have I been doing uh, I've been painting for the zombie death bots show still one piece available everything else pre-sold which is pretty amazing and uh, but there is one piece which is ironically my favorite painting from the whole show I think my favorite character hasn't sold yet so there's one piece available you can contact Copro gallery if you want if you're interested if you want to buy it um you can check that stuff out on my Patreon too, um, patreon.com slash chetzar. If you want to support this podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash darkartsociety. And if you join it, the it, you can join for as little as a dollar, support the podcast, get your name read on the show. And if you join at the $5 level, you will get entered into a drawing to win a free skull from our sponsor, the skull shop that's s k u l l s h o p p e dot com here's one of their skulls now if you're watching on youtube check it out it's a great skull it looks totally real their skulls are amazing anyway kyle's a great guy it's his shop it's his skull shop he does amazing work and um Join in at the $5 level at uh, patreon.com slash darkartsociety and get entered to win a skull every month. So let's see, new subscriber. Um, hold on one second here. New subscriber this month or this week, sorry. Joe Rizzotto. Thank you, Joe. You're making it happen. You're keeping the podcast going. Couldn't do it without you subscribers. Um, is there anything else? Not really. Uh, nothing comes to mind. Oh, we have a YouTube channel. The YouTube channel is, is developing and happening. I started posting a podcast or a dark art society podcast on this channel at the beginning of the year. And I've sort of been lagging on it and posting like, you know, once a month, but it kind of dawned on me the other day. I've got, you know, 200 
episodes that uh, that are audio only that I just need to convert into videos to post them on YouTube. I mean, most of the stuff I listen to is on YouTube. So I assume a lot of other people get their podcasts from YouTube. So I'm in the process of converting those old episodes to video, even though there's no image uh, to speak of. There's no image of us talking like the new new episodes are. Uh, but so those are dropping like daily. So just search dark art society podcast on YouTube and please subscribe and like the videos and watch the videos or have them play in the background. Cause I'm trying to get to a point where I can monetize that channel and I have to get a thousand subscribers on there. I've only got 280 right now and we need 4,000 hour, hours of watch time. And there's only like 700 hours of watch time right now you need that in a year space to monetize the channel anyway that will help the whole dark art society uh podcast and everything we're trying to do here we can get more money coming in from it all right so that's it let's get to the good part and that is my interview with mitch horowitz i think you're really gonna enjoy it uh what a cool guy okay here we go my interview with Mitch Horowitz. Hope you enjoy it. Good to be here, man. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you on. Oh my god, this is this is too fun. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> and you're in your studio. Yeah, yeah. This is my painting great. studio. It's the beautiful. Uh, Oh, thanks. Yes, I paint. I was working on this guy during the last um, uh, uh, daydream believer seminar. Oh, I, brilliant! Yeah, yeah. It's it, it's for me. It's it's it was so fun listening to that. Um, I liked that there was not a lot of audience participation, and I could just kind of listen because I mm -hmm. what I what I love to do is what I, my favorite thing to do, which is paint, and then listen to things like this. It's like it, it's a way for me to get in that headspace and totally get into what you're saying while I'm doing my favorite thing. So it was like, just so, so enjoyable. I just love oh, it. Oh, so I appreciate much. it. Thank you. And one of the things for me, when I'm giving a presentation, whether it's live or digital is I very rarely use graphics during the presentation. Right. I That's really the thing. Feel, yeah. I want there to be a kind of extemporaneous back and forth with the, with the listeners. And also when you're doing the old PowerPoint or what have you during presentations it it weds you to a certain script and there's a place for that but for me i i really enjoy the extemporaneous connection with the uh with the participants yeah that's what i was when, uh, on day one i was not sure how it was going to be and so when i realized it was just going to be you talking i was like oh this is great i can keep painting <laughs> <laughs> oh that's excellent that's um, great yeah so i uh I'll do an intro. I'll, I'll record an intro to, cool. to kind of give people your your background and stuff. But I mean, you know, be, I don't want to get too caught up on that because you you've you've done it so many times. You've said it a million yeah, times anything, on a million sure. podcasts, right? As right. far as like what you do, but you're an occult uh, scholar and a writer and a lecturer, and uh, you know, you're, there's a million YouTube videos of you out there. So uh, for people listening who aren't familiar with Mitch's work, definitely check, check him out. But I, I first, um, I think I discovered you on Jason's podcast, Jason Louv's podcast. Yes. 
And I kept hearing so many things that were so similar to my own life. I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta get this guy on the podcast. This is too much, you know, from the, uh, first off, anybody talking mind met metaphysics, that's a, a punk rock guy is like, you know, that's a given for me. That's like, uh, cool. <laughs> that's my jam. It's like, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a punk. I like, you know, I'm a huge dead Kennedys fan. Yeah. Yeah, I, gr I grew up on this stuff and my, um, my kind of, I got into magic around the same time I got into punk rock and it's like mm -hmm. it completely changed who I was or maybe a more fully realized version of myself around this time. So I, I I've always connected uh, punk, punk and magic are very similar to me because I, mm -hmm. I was discovering them at the same time in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, yes. uh, and I was always, and it always kind of made me feel like an outsider in the, uh spiritual community in that way because there's no punks in in there it's all like yeah white light folks and it's like right and, and hippies and stuff it's like where's the punks punk seems to be totally in line with magic to me it makes yes. perfect sense the independence and the diy thing it's like you know that's magic <laughs> exactly and you, you mentioned jason lube and one of the reasons i dig jason is because his search i hope like my own is very married to lifestyle and mm -hmm. as is punk and right. I, I, I you know people always ask me what for me is the personal connection between punk and magic or punk and the occult and i've never been entirely sure but i remember at age 16 uh or maybe 17 being in my bedroom smoking weed <laughs> lonely staring in a mirror and then uh, on came holiday in Cambodia and listening to a college radio station or something. Right. And I tell you, a lot of people have that aha moment where they discover some work of expression and it just changes everything for them. And for me, that moment was an instant change and I've never forgotten it. And it was a kind of alchemy. Mm -hmm. And so I always ask myself, all right, look, all of us in life, we have all these problems, we have these needs, we have relationships, we have things that we want to express. Are there accelerants? Are there things that will help get us there? And for me, just hearing the Kennedys come over the radio helped get me someplace. It opened me up to a channel of communication that I just didn't know was there. Up to that moment, I was listening to the Steve Miller band, you know, right. <laughs> no aspersion on Steve Miller. I love him, yeah, but yep. <laughs> there was a hunger that was unmet. And when I heard the Kennedys at that young age, that, that hunger was, was met. And I know it was, it was, I experienced something nourishing and I wanted more of it. And so for me, the occult is the same thing. It's the individual not necessarily having to be married to a congregational approach or wanting to carry a membership card or, you know, depending upon a person's search, even dedicating him or herself to a series of rituals or liturgy, there's an, an anarchic quality to mm -hmm. it. And it's a quality that really seeks to get you someplace. So I've been very into this idea from a young age, right up until today of, of searching for accelerants and, you know, punk mm -hmm. has been that and, and the occult has been that. Yeah, I I I felt like uh, it seemed like punk was so anti-authority um, mm -hmm. and anti-religion that mm -hmm. they they ended up kind of generally are more like humanist, uh, uh, atheistic, 
it seems like the, a, a, as a whole, the the there's not a lot of uh, magical thinkers in punk rock. Yes, right, right. And uh, the closest thing I ever was able to find was a uh, a book about a Buddhist punk rocker. Mm-hmm. That was I know uh, that book. Yeah. Okay, yeah, and that was that was cool. And I was like, oh, that to me was like you know the first thing I'd found. And I because I like again I always felt like the oddball, but I mean, isn't that the whole point of punk yeah, and yeah. magic really is is right. the out, outsider status um, you know apropos of that you do run into a lot of people not only within punk communities but within communities of political dissent or social dissent however one defines it um they're very materialist the the, the spiritual right. search the extra physical search is not really part of their lives and one of the things i write about in this upcoming book uncertain places is that there doesn't have to be this this divorce, this chasm between occultism and political dissent. I think that that modernist culture, maybe because religion for so many centuries in its traditional form had been a source of regression, modernist culture really drew down a very sharp line of demarcation between religion and radical social change. So you'll find that in Marx, you'll find that in Freud, you find that in almost all the philosophers that grew out of that milieu. And I've never felt it was necessary because the whole, the central principle of modernist philosophy, it seems to me, is that there are unseen antecedents toward what we experience in life. So if you're a Marxist, that's uh, economic cycles that that result in some inevitable clash or, or revolution. If you're a Freudian, uh, that might be trauma or sexual repression. Mm. And even if you get into the so-called hard sciences, you know, for Einstein, that becomes time and relativity. For Louis Pasteur, that's 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 germs and microbes. For William James, it's a personality conditioning. But the whole modernist idea is that there are these unseen but knowable antecedents to events that we experience. And the occult philosophy it seems to me is in harmony with that because it's the belief in an unseen dimension of life whose 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 influences can be felt on us can be felt through us the extra physical so the search for the extra physical it seems to me doesn't need to be detached from any of these other right. areas whatever one's approach is you know yeah 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 it's just weird how how the you know generally speaking the new age uh metaphysical scene is dominated by more like hippie types, which is fine, yeah. you know, but, but that's, that was one thing that uh, bugged me. It always kind of bugged me. It's like, you know, this, this is supposed to be about a personal search and it shouldn't be, it shouldn't have a uniform in a way. Yes, You know what I right, mean? Right. And it's amazing how beliefs can become their own uniform and right. you meet people mm-hmm. within the alternative spiritual culture who perceive themselves as outsiders and yet they cannot slam shut the door quickly enough <laughs> when somebody comes in with a set of ideas non-invasive non-coercive ideas that they don't like right so for example over the past several years of my search i've been really interested in my own esoteric conception of satanism as a ethical spiritual self-developmental path and I will not infrequently encounter people on the New Age who might consider themselves witches or astrologers or s- belong to some strand of mysticism, and they want to slam shut the door. And even though 
you know, I take pains to explain what my outlook is, what my philosophy is. It's the romanticism. It's the it's the Satanism of the romantics. You know, the romantic right. poets who saw the figure of Satan as a not quite metaphorical force for rebellion, for usurpation, for radical individuality. And yet some of these same people will rush to slam shut the door, even though they've had the experience of having the door slam shut, which is why they're on the alternative <laughs> spiritual scene. But it's human nature. And, yeah. and and we all do it. We all do it. I have to watch for examples in, in myself of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's something we always have to, I think, kind of fight against or at least be aware of when we're doing it. Yeah, uh, And that's definitely one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, because you have gotten me interested in um, your view of Satanism has is, is made me more uh, open to accepting it. Uh, it's it's like I've always had a squeamishness just about the mm -hmm. name. You know, yeah. it's like I uh, I've I've. I'm I'm pretty sure I read the Satanic Bible. It's been so long. I'm right. Ninety nine. Kind of a requisite, you know. So we, <laughs> we all pass through yeah, it at some right. point. Yeah, yeah. Right. And but you know, over the years, uh, I've I've um, you know read the I don't know the nine Satanic statements and these things things like this and and um, I you know I've always been like that makes sense. That makes sense. I don't really agree with that one, but this makes sense. This makes sense. It's like there's like always like two or three that I'm not quite in line with. And so I feel like I uh, that and my own conditioning has kept me is, has made that made me not fully accepting of the idea that it's a legitimate spiritual path. Mm -hmm. But hearing you speak about it, th that's the thing that tripped me out when I heard you talking about it on um, Jason's podcast mm -hmm. was that uh, it's like exactly like what i'm doing in art that's how, how i feel it's it's it could, because you know what i do is like we call it dark art it's what everybody calls it uh and um it's monsters it's macabre stuff it's creepy stuff and uh because i love that stuff i just love it it makes me feel good um aesthetically i just there's something about it and i've been that way since i was a kid yeah a and um there was but there was a point where i was starting my art career again another parallel between us it's like i had a successful career in the special effects makeup industry in the film right. industry for like 15 years and i decided you know uh, this used to be my dream job and now it's not anymore and what my dream is and the thing i used to dream about in the first grade was being an artist a, a fine artist a painter and uh and so i decided you know at age 30 that I was going to start teaching myself how to paint. And then like, by the time I was 40, early forties, I quit the, uh, the day job to do mm -hmm. fine, fine art. Mm. Um, but anyway, point being when I went to go and sit down and, and paint and realized, I realized that I want to paint monsters, you know, what, what, what would be the most real thing I could paint? Because I came out of this commercialized uh, art directed type of job for movies where it's, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, uh, designed by committee and mm. make, make your, make your creature 13% less scary. And right. <laughs> <laughs> literally got, I've gotten notes. Like <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so I was like, okay, I want it to be real and pure, mm -hmm. pure expression. Yeah. Cause it's yeah. the opposite of what I've been dealing with mm -hmm. in the film industry. And I had to uh, admit to myself, I want to paint monster stuff. I want to paint 
stuff that is not taken seriously. There's no market for it. But I feel like, you know, if I'm going to follow the Joseph Campbell, follow your bliss theory. Right. It'll work out for me because this is my true passion. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I started painting these monsters and I, I almost felt some guilt about it in the beginning. And, and, and the thing that brings me back to your um, interview with Jason, where he's like, weren't you, were you ever kind of scared when you decided you were going to go down the satanic path? And you were like, I just, uh, you made, you made some, a comment that was something like, I, you know, was going to go all the way. I was going to just, I committed to going all the way. And, and I did, I had that moment with my art. I was like, I feel kind of guilty. Am I doing, is this putting badness out in the world? It's not, you know, cause I, my mom was like a new age person. So I mm-hmm, have that mm-hmm. kind of positive baggage on me, so mm-hmm. to speak. But, um, but I was like, I have to do it. I'm yes. going to take it all the way. And, and so that just resonated with me because, you know, your, your, your decision sounds similar to the des- decision I made with my artwork. Yeah, I I think that's true. I I really think that's true. And I made a decision to dive into the deep end of the pool because that's where the the big fish are and I want to discover things. And I have to admit, it was not a tough decision. It wasn't something that I wrestled with. Um, I'm always careful because the term Satan or Satanism is so fraught, I'm always careful to define that I believe there is an esoteric backstory to the Satanic in the West that we all have not fully understood. I believe that the Romantic poets, um, William Blake, Percy Bysshe Shelley, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, uh, and others, Lord Byron most especially, they grasped the satanic as a, a force, an energetic force, if I can put it that way, mm-hmm. within the human story and not quite metaphysical, not quite metaphorical force, not quite metaphorical force. I mean, these were these were people who were very interested in probing the extra physical as I am. And that it was a force, as I alluded earlier, of rebellion, usurpation, radical individual, uh, radical individualism, non-coercive, non-invasive, not the violent a kind of colloquialism that 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 has gotten draped over that term. And I've also had people I love who have said to me, look, I dig everything that you're saying. I understand everything that you're about, but must you use that term? <laughs> because we as a society, we as a human community in the West are never going to get past that term. Right. And, you know, I think they're right. I, I, I always say this story is unfinished. I, I've embraced terms that some people eschew like new age or occult itself or ESP. I don't believe in putting a bow tie on something and dandying it up and saying, see, it's not ESP anymore. Now it's called side. See, it's not channeling anymore. And now it's called intuitive. See, it's, it's not esoteric. It's, it's not occult. It's esoteric. You know, I mean, we always keep sort of changing the bed linen, hoping that, that this will prove more acceptable. And I've, I've never believed in doing that because I do think certain terms have historical integrity. And I come from the Abrahamic tradition, that being Judaism, Christianity, Islam, I had an Orthodox Jewish bar mitzvah. I grew up in a household that was very um, traditionally Jewish. I have heard the terms uh, Azazel and 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 Shaitan or Satan uh, announced in synagogue, you know, literally. Mm-hmm. And and I always felt 
that there was an esoteric backstory, and one doesn't have to go hugely beyond scripture, which I just see as a parable of, of the human story, as mm -hmm. all enduring expressions are, to, to, to find that. And I mean, my source material, uh, I start with Genesis 3, the snake in the garden. And I grew up as a little kid, you know, in a synagogue, hearing uh, the name of the, the the demonic Azazel announced during Yom Kippur. And it was not negative. It was a moral neutral. This was a force that existed in the world with which the Hebrews had a relationship. They might have been a little scared. They might have thought, <laughs> we're not going to have this guy over every single night. But there are times where we are going to interact with this figure. Hmm. And and it was a moral neutral. It was a fact of of life. It was part of the, it was part of the the forces that they dealt with in the world. And coming from that tradition, as many of us do in the West, I felt that that term had historical grounding and integrity, and it figured into my search. Mm -hmm. And so when I embarked on this path, I gave a public talk very very early on. Uh, which I titled Satanism, The Dark Alternative. That's great. I've and, seen yeah. it. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> thank you. And I purposely, and I must say, um, very effortlessly used that term. And so we scheduled the talk and everything was fine and everybody was happy. And then I was told by the venue organizers that there was somebody at this particular venue who was a very well-loved astrologer who said she was going to quit the place and walk if I gave that talk. <laughs> and I said, then then we'll have to deal with that because I won't change the title. Not because I'm being obstinate or not because I am interested in provocation as an end to itself, but because that that's my search in private and my public and my private search are the same or I become a politician, you know, mm, and, yeah. and life and search work, life search, they're all one whole. So I, I, I elected to embark on that, making every effort to be understood, knowing that sometimes it would be misunderstood. Right. Yeah. I feel like in a sense, uh, I've skirted around that, that, truth in a way because if you i mean if based on your definition from what i've heard of satanism mm -hmm. and what i know about it it's like this is satanic art yes <laughs> you know it, it's, it's beautiful oh, it's thanks. dark in the sense that the womb is dark <laughs> right you know, right this is, right this is the soil is dark right, the cosmos right. are dark yeah this, this is yeah i've said this a million times on the podcast because th this is the point of the podcast really is about ultimately it's it's you know it was started to kind of promote dark art because um, I feel like it's, it's legitimate art. It's real. It's, and it's really, really amazing. I think it's so good. I think it's super prescient to what's going on in the world today. It's like, it's ticks all the boxes. And so, and, but we're kind of a marginalized group, especially in the art world, not mm -hmm. taken seriously at all. So wow. was, I'm was, surprised to hear that after all these years. Well, that, I mean, that, he, wow. even Giger, you know, it's like, you don't see any Giger shows at the mocha or i'm talking about the blue right. chip contemporary art world it's just not got you we're like illustrative we're too illustrative for them we're you know using low subject matter like comic books and horror comic books and things like for inspiration <laughs> and horror movies but you know my idea is like we those things inspired us and at least and, and this is at least speaking for me and i know it's a lot of, for, true for a lot of other dark artists it's we're trying to elevate these things that we love 
and put them in a new context as fine art because they they mean that much to to, to us like tales from the crypt comics they've meant something to me and they still do they're so cool so it's like these aren't it's, low forms of art. The, no, it's it's genius. Right, you right. Know, you know, it's funny. One of my one of my favorite artists is uh, the recently deceased uh, comic illustrator Steve Ditko, mm-hmm, and yeah. I love Ditko, and I'm a huge Ditko fan. And I remember vividly when I was a kid collecting comics. My friends and I, first of all, did not like Ditko when I was a kid because we thought these are stick figures. This is childish looking. We like John Byrne and the more realist Mm -hmm. comic artists. That's just because that's what we were raised on. And it was only later into adulthood that I revisited Ditko and I came to love him and realize the magic in his work. and And it's amazing for a man who was an ardently dedicated materialist and objectivist, certainly towards later in life, a Mm. deep, deep acolyte of Ayn Rand. Who else but Ditko could illustrate the cosmic so beautifully and so well, not only in Doctor Strange, but in many of his horror comics. And Ditko had trouble getting along with people. Mm. Uh, He didn't dig the machine. Mm. And so he wound up leaving Marvel Comics, going off on his own. Uh, And in the late 60s and 70s, he's writing and illustrating for Charlton Comics, which was considered to be a very backwater shop located in Connecticut, considered to have poor printing standards and so forth. And all that was true, but there was no editorial oversight. So Ditko could just run wild and do whatever he wanted and nobody bothered him. And he loved it. He was happy. But in comic fandom, when I was growing up, people didn't collect Charlton comics. They regarded Charlton as sort of joke books and they wanted the more serious stuff from Frank Miller and and and, and other artists, all of which was wonderful. But now Ditko's been fully rediscovered and his Charlton era is considered magnificent. And uh, in, in speaking of the blue chip art world, there's a, a, a Spanish art institute uh, in, in the nation of Spain that several years ago did a massive Ditko retrospective. I don't know if that's coming soon anytime to the Guggenheim or MoMA, <laughs> but but they did it and they produced a beautiful catalog book. And I was, I was very glad they did it. And Ditko's career is a portrait of an adage that is attributed to Satan in John Milton's Paradise Lost, very famous, um, better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. Right. <laughs> I, I, I actually think that that was, it was actually um, probably Julius Caesar, at least historically, according to record, who first uh, uttered those words in the work of, um, uh, what's the ancient Hellenic historian, uh, uh, Plutarch. Uh, Plutarch records Caesar crossing the Alps with some of his lieutenants, and they come up on this very poor rundown village and the lieutenant's joke, uh, is this oh, village right. worthy yeah. of your, your, your conquering? And Caesar said to them, in all seriousness, I would rather be number one here than be number two in Rome. I think that's a precursor for Milton's uh, statement, better to uh, rule in hell than right. serve in heaven. But I thought, Ditko elected to rule in hell. And I was told, and I don't know for sure because he was intensely private, but I was told that when the initial Spider-Man and Doctor Strange movies came out, he was offered money, creator's money, in connection with those movies, probably to forestall future lawsuits yeah, right. and from him or his, his estate. And he rejected it. And he rejected it. And I thought, you know, because he didn't approve of the movies. And 
that's another thing I loved about Ditko, because if you're into Ayn, Ayn Rand's philosophy, if you're into objectivist philosophy, which people always think is amoral, and I totally disagree with that, his ethic as an artist was to abide only by that work that he completely believed in, and he didn't like the movies. Right. Probably no surprise there. You know, that was Steve. You know, he didn't like the movies. So instead of complaining and grumbling privately or complaining over a blog while cashing the check, right. he didn't take the check. And I always say, you know, don't be a hero after you cash the check. You know, if you don't <laughs> dig it and if you're going to complain about it, right. don't take the resources, don't participate. Right. I mean, an artist has no power other than the ability in the world, other than the ability to withhold his or her work uh, or Absolutely. consent. So, yeah. so Steve withheld his work and consent. And and he is a portrait. He is an exemplar of of that statement attributed to Satan, uh, better to better to rule in hell. And so, you know, you you rule in hell. You know, I mean, you right. made the decision <laughs> to go in this direction, knowing right. that the blue chip art world wasn't quite ready, and yet it's given you tremendous personal happiness. Yeah, and 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 isn't this this is punk rock as well? Yes. I mean, one of the reasons yes. I kind of had the. I think the courage to leave the film industry um, and, and go out on my own was, is from a Jello Biafra spoken word thing um, yes. where he said, uh, you know, in his, in his Jello voice, if you're, <laughs> he's got that, that, that great voice. Do it. If yeah. you're, uh, what does he say? Uh, and if you work for, oh God, if you're an artist, oh, give me one second. Let me think. Let me think. Yeah. Oh, he's talking about big corporations. If you're an yeah. artist, don't give them your talents. Like, don't give them your talents. Don't let them have that. And I felt like uh, working in the film industry, I was doing that. I was working on other people's dreams. I was most of the movies I worked mm -hmm. on. I didn't. I thought were lame, and, mm -hmm. uh, and they weren't inspired, and and um, they weren't. You know, they're they're. they're I, I always say if there was more Guillermo del Toro's, I probably wouldn't have left the film industry because he's like one of us. He's like a, mm -hmm. he's legit. He loves what he's doing. He's all about the monsters. He's a practical effects guy and all this stuff. Um, but I felt like I was giving my talents to the man in a way, and I yeah. wasn't really expressing myself. Um, so I, I, you know, back to the punk thing as well. I'm a big fan of the Minuteman and Mike Watt is is. Uh, one of my heroes and we happen to be from the t same town weird san pedro which is totally bizarre but mm. um uh he's also indie guy still he he was bass player for the stooges recently mm. or he's been the bass player for the stooges uh for the last i think 10 years but he's been always his own music never sold out always mm -hmm. been like mm -hmm. true to his vision um so anyway but the point i was going to make though was you know, you another thing that that um, made me realize I had to meet you and get you on the podcast was you talking about darkness as um, the womb, as space. Yes. And, and it's like I've said that on the podcast so many times, but I'm talking about dark art and I'm talking about it's like I just I just never use the word Satanism. It's always the word because I'm putting everything in the context uh, of dark art for dark artists mm -hmm. and people who appreciate it. And um and, you know, like on my Twitter, it's got this the, the young quote, which is uh, uh, enlightenment is not the uh, <laughs> no, I'm going to can't remember. Enlightenment is not uh, the 
is not imagining beings of light, but making the darkness conscious. And yes. to me, that's like, that's dark art in a nutshell right there. It's like, you know, you, it's spiritual. It's yes. spiritual. It's positive. It's, it's all the things that a uh, legitimate spiritual path claims to be, I believe. Absolutely. And it's fascinating how our culture is in love with it, but has to keep reprocessing it through metaphors. Right. So everybody loves Loki. Well, who do you think Loki <laughs> is exactly? Everybody loves Darth Vader. Everybody right. loves Maleficent. Right. You know, it's like, who do you think these people are? You know, like, yeah, seriously, yeah. Yeah, you know, that, let's all take a look in the mirror together. You know, right, right. And that's a thing yeah. that goes back to when I was a kid was, the, you know, I liked the villains, but I was super sensitive. Yeah. I was super sensitive. I didn't like hurting animals. I haven't eaten meat yeah. in 30 years. I used yeah. to, I remember my friends would shoot birds with BB guns and I would start crying. It was like, I could yeah. So I was very good, whatever, good hearted. I don't sensitive hearted, but I always identified with the villains. Like yeah. I re you remember uh, Tommy, the, the movie Tommy. Sure. Yeah. Um, remember cousin Kevin. Sure. I used to think cousin Kevin, he's torturing Roger Daltrey or Tommy mm -hmm. in that scene. But I the way Roger he... behaves, sometimes you might feel. Like... <laughs> but, but, go ahead, sorry. But, but uh, uh, I thought he was cool, even yeah. though I was able to go. It's terrible what he's doing, but I just it was like you know. Sometimes I wonder: are there is it a, a crossed wiring in the brain or something? Because I just. I've always been attracted to it. Darth Vader, the villains, the monsters, Frankenstein. These were the interesting characters to me. And the ones that I, you know, at least maybe not in Cousin Kevin, <laughs> in Cousin Kevin's case, but in Frankenstein's case, it was like, you know, you feel bad for them. Absolutely. You, you feel empathy for them. And that's really what I try and do. I think with probably 90% of my monster paintings are I want to and you know uh invoke a feeling of sympathy or empathy like you know there's more than oh my god that's horrible i want people to go like ah <laughs> yeah you know i mean the most compelling villains maybe the only compelling villains are those with a backstory you know right. who have their own reason their own outlook their own point of view and one of the things i always tell people and this relates to what you were saying is that uh, first of all, my path is a path of nonviolence, by which I don't mean desisting from legitimate self-defense, but doing nothing to violate or knowingly violate another person's reach for self-potential in the same way that I want that reach mm -hmm. honored in myself. And I really feel as though that's my only ethic on the path, you know, that and transparency. You know, I try to tell the truth about my experience, because if I don't, again, then I'm reverting to a kind of politics. So I, 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 I aspire to transparency. I aspire to, to nonviolence, again, by which I mean not disrupting another person's search for his or her own self-development the same way that I reach for, for mine. Non-invasive, non-coercive, and people can judge the result in conduct. And that's what it comes down to. Yeah, that's 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 why I I really like that you're you're open about your path because um you know you're 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 uh walking the walk 
You know, mm-hmm. clearly anybody that pays attention to your work knows you're very ethical and, and, and um, you know, you, you, re- you really try to be, you know, I hate to say a good person because that's like kind of, a, that's, right. that's, but, but you know what I'm saying? You, you, yeah, it sounds like Pollyannish, but, but you, you're very str- have very strong ethics. It seems very important to you to be an ethical person. And to, I know you talk a lot about sticking to your word and things like this, you know, loyalty, yeah, which is, yeah. You know, so important uh, and, um, and so and, important and we're embarrassed to talk about it like right. everybody thinks loyalty is corruption or something and you know it seems right. quaint and and i think we should talk about it yeah it's funny i i i think something that helped me in the search several years ago and i have to attribute this to uh dean Raiden, who's a, a esp researcher who's a friend and someone i hold in great esteem i was telling dean on this long drive that I was reading uh, the graphic novel, Death of Superman. And there were many spinoffs from that. And in one of these spinoffs, uh, Superman's uh, character is is revived, but he's lost his powers. He's lost his, his superpowers, but he's still trying to do uh, good in the world. And, um, and, and by good, I guess I would say, um, he's trying to foster a kind of reciprocity, so trying to set right imbalanced scales. And, and that can mean a lot of different things. And so Dean said to me, um, does he have super emotions? And I said, well, he has super ethics. And Dean said, well, ethics come from the emotions. And I was like, boom, you're absolutely right. And I realized what else are ethics but empathy? reciprocity the capacity to see another as self the the capacity to sense the wholeness of things and so it struck me that what we talk about as as ethics and i think morality is kind of like an air sets ethics but what we talk about as ethics is really just an, an attempt to formalize empathy and if a person has a sense of empathy that person is going to be an ethical person. And then we need ethics in a more structured sense when when empathy leaves the room. And ethics can be a good guide. There's a place for it. It can be a good, good guide. But it is a stand-in for empathy. And I don't think you can teach a person empathy. Um, I think probably there's some fraction of people who enter this world for whatever reason with a fineness of emotions and if they have that fineness of emotions empathy chief among them uh, they will be ethical and and then we use more formal ethics to try to keep shit going you know Mm -hmm. so okay you know we need traffic lights and we need stop signs (laughs) and we need this and we need that and then then sometimes we go overboard but certain guardrails are are needed but these things are efforts to compensate for an absence of empathy in the broadest sense right yeah i wonder if um you know uh people experiencing tragedy or pain or uh painful experiences to people they uh People they love get hurt. Um, this seems to create empathy. You hear often about people who, you know, don't care about abortion rights until their daughter ends up needing an abortion or mm-hmm. something like this. I wonder mm-hmm. if um, if if a state of empathy can develop in a person from 
you know, something bad happening to them or something bad happening to somebody they love. You know, you're talking about, you know, people are you kind of you're sort of saying people are kind of either born with it or not. And I'm just wondering if uh, it can develop later in life, like a lot of addicts, you know, mm. they're they're these self-centered assholes for most of their lives. And then they, mm. they just go rock bottom. And then they, you know, I think in, in, in being forced to kind of help other addicts, they become more empathetic, maybe. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm just kind well, of well, that's certainly what Bill Wilson believed. You know, Bill felt that sobriety was only possible in fellowship, that you had mm -hmm. to be pulling somebody else into the lifeboat in order to stay into the lifeboat yourself. I mean, you're, you're framing it in an interesting way. Uh, seen from one perspective, I have very little faith in human nature. And <laughs> I um, understand, understandable. Yeah. And I, I've always been been attached to something, admiring of something that was said by G.I. Gurdjieff, which is that most people have no principle whatsoever. They just have, I like, and I don't like, I like, and they don't like. So they don't like abortion until they or someone right, they love needs right. an abortion. And then they like it, you know, temporarily right, because right. It, it suits their needs. At the same time, I have recognized people who go into recovery and there is a remarkable transformation, a conversion, an epiphany, call it what you will, moment of clarity, and, and something does change. It could be that those people had an empathic core that was never stimulated in any right. way. And suddenly the feeling that, my God, I'm going to die if I don't get over this right. uh, serves as, as stimulation. So that is possible, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I I had to write a few things down because I wanted this, sure. <laughs> this interview to go well. I normally don't write <laughs> questions down. I just kind of go by the seat of my pants. But, um, uh, you know, one thing I was thinking was, okay, this idea of Satanism is almost like a reorienting, a reorienting of values in a, in a way mm -hmm. like, uh, and in a way it's kind of an alchemical process. Mm -hmm. it, it's, 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 it's like taking something that was previously considered low and bad and, you know, shitty or whatever, and, mm -hmm. and kind of elevating it to this god status or to this holy status mm -hmm. and that's kind of like a um it seems kind of like alchemy in a way to me mm -hmm. yes. unless i'm misunderstanding alchemy the idea of no no i think that's alchemy. beautifully put it's like the transformation of the coarse to the fine right and i think that that transformation occurs when we rediscover reframe outsider ideas exactly. that have been grossly misunderstood right. which is what a lot of what you do with your art you know these right. are you're you're not depicting um suffering for its own sake you're depicting a suffering that comes from something and then develops into something else so right. it, it too is kind of like going from the from the fine to the from the coarse to the fine so i think that there absolutely is absolutely is an alchemical process there and one of the things that's been helpful for me recently in my search is i i i i found myself gradually but then very suddenly no longer thinking in terms of the standard hierarchical religious model of you know good or heaven or what have you is up here and right. mediocre is over here and then all the bad <laughs> shit is down here and it's it's all just a conception it's all just right. a conception and i think that we 
on the path don't often realize how deeply framed our search is by familiarity. And I often say now, familiarity is not truth. It doesn't matter how right. many times something has been repeated or how many centuries or millennia our culture has spent telling the same story to itself. That doesn't mean it's true. And the seeker has to verify these things in his or her own experience and is able to verify them as part of the private search. It doesn't liberate me from everything in outer life. I have relationships, I have debts and so forth in, in the broadest sense of those terms. And that's all there. But within the private confines of your search, it's so exquisitely private. You are given the freedom, maybe it's the one area in life where the individual is given that total freedom to, to re-examine things and ask in all earnestness, how do I know this is true? How do I know this right. is true? And I started off our conversation by saying that I'm, I've always been very interested in accelerants on the path. And many years ago, I was seated in a, a meeting of a spiritual group, a very dedicated group, seriously studying esoteric principles, applying esoteric principles or, or endeavoring to. And I asked a question and a senior member of the group, he misheard my question, but he said, there are no shortcuts. And at that moment, it was like a light went on because I said to myself, okay, good man, did mishear my question, made a statement, there are no shortcuts, to which most people would not in agreement. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, how do I know that? Right. How do I know there are no <laughs> shortcuts? You know, I don't know that that's, that's actually true. And so <clears throat> moments like that were very helpful to me because we we hear these truisms and we assume that they must be true because they're so overwhelmingly familiar, but we really don't know. Right. And so much of that is from people who didn't have toilet paper or, you know, people who mm -hmm, didn't mm -hmm. know how to read or write. Right. It's like so much of that is just kind of, I'm you know, not putting down ancient wisdom, obviously, but you know what I'm saying? It was a different world. And that's one of the things I really... Yeah enjoyed about i don't know if it was in a a talk you did or in uh, one of your books i've read but but um you mentioning that you know the idea of uh not uh you know rejecting material wealth and things like this come from eastern generally like Eastern practices where the whole, there was a different world. Like you didn't have yeah. a, you never had a chance of being wealthy if you weren't born into it. It's Absolutely. like, it's from the caste system. So it's like, why are we f following these, these rules that don't apply to us? This is a totally different situation, especially if you're living in America. I, I, yeah. And it, within every religion and, and we always have to remember that every religion is crafted by human hands coming right. from a certain time, place, culture, set of needs Within every religion, I think you find a mixture of the universal and the local. You'll find universal truths that you put to the test in experience and 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 they they stand up and they stand up in the testimony of many seekers across millennia. And then you find what might be considered the local things that might have been a local concern, a local need. Mm -hmm. uh, you certainly find that in terms of hardcore prohibitions, liturgy practice. I mean, the ancient Hebrews were against tattoos. You know, I've obviously right, right. <laughs> you know, strayed from the flock, but, you know, their reasons for that may have been that they were struggling to differentiate themselves from other tribes right. in the Mediterranean area, and everybody had their own 
ceremonies and so forth and to hold their their society together they they put up certain walls as we often do and the principle that you were alluding to of non-attachment non-identification i mean you find that certainly within the vedic faiths within buddhism within christianity um and it's again it seems so overwhelmingly persuasive but it's important to remember that the the men and women who were walking the earth at the time when these religions were crafted and even for centuries and centuries after, they had no more likelihood of exiting the caste from which they were born in than they had of walking on the surface of another planet, right, literally. Right. <laughs> and so these religions were serving to salve and address and deal with that foundational problem of life that you were cemented into a human role that could not be escaped within the structures of the day but you could look towards the extra physical as a source of uh, salvation or justice or a, a deeper greater life and that may be very very valid but life to me is all one whole and when we start drawing these demarcations it gets very fuzzy where does you know where's the line of demarcation between personality and essence identification non-identification attachment non-attachment higher lower all of it all of these things seem to me to be expressive of one whole existence not one part being better than superior right. to more right than the other and i came to think less of life and being about non-attachment or non-identification which are just terms they're just conceptions of life then as all expressions are i mean we speak in generalizations so that we can communicate with one another i do it too but I came to see life more as a question of self-expression. Right. And that self-expression could take place on any number of intersections of existence, whether we call them physical or extra-physical, it's one whole. And I think these sharp lines of demarcation were baked into many of our early religious traditions because they addressed the needs that yeah. people were dealing with. I'm sure it was very helpful back mm. then to have that, yeah. to that belief. You know, it helped get you through the day when it was like, you know, hopeless. Yeah. And I see seekers today, I see it all the time, as, as I'm sure many of your listeners do, who get torn apart by these ideas of wanting to express, to attain, to acquire in the broadest sense, and and then at the same time, striving towards non-attachment, non-identification, not wanting to become a, a hungry ghost, not wanting to get caught up in the wheel of samsara or illusion. Mm. And I see people, especially people who are active within variants of the Vedic faiths or offshoots of the Vedic faith, they can be torn in two by these things because they're striving in the world. And I'm very sympathetic to their strivings. And at the same time, they're imbibing ideas very often translations of translations of translations far removed right. from their original source that are counseling non-attachment. And then you get these crazy um, situations where, you know, I have people writing to me um, vociferously defending non-attachment without any <laughs> sense of irony whatsoever. I have people professing to dedicate their lives to service while throwing a rock at me, you know, while, <laughs> right. while viscerally insulting me or somebody else while they're yeah. professing to 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 dedicate themselves to service. And and there's no 
uh, apparent sense of irony whatsoever. So we get into these very strange situations. Yeah, yeah, that's hilarious. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, when did you, at what point were, okay, first off, we're about the same age, I think. I'm going to be 55 in November. I'm 56, yeah. Okay, yeah, so we kind of grew up in the, 70s i found the 70s very creepy personally <laughs> I, don't know if it, I don't know if it was my you know i had a early i had a really great i think you know one to three years is pretty pretty cool i think and then mm -hmm. there was there was all this turmoil in my family life brother and sister fighting divorce mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. nightmare going on around me and me just trying to keep my head down and you know how it was in the 70s nobody told you shit you know, nobody told me why my dad left, why my parents, no one even said anything to me. It was crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems crazy now, but, um, but to me, it's like, there was this undercurrent and this is probably just my personal experience, but there was like this undercurrent of kind of this dread mm -hmm. with saccharine sweet music being played like the carpenters in the background, which is so weird and creepy so now whenever i hear a carpenter song it gives me like this weird nostalgic creepy feeling nostalgic kind of creepy feeling um and it probably worked its way into my art and part probably part of the reason i love this sort of thing is it does speak to my experiences that i growing up was was a weird mix of i don't know that and the fact that my grandfather used to put a halloween a uh, caveman mask you probably would recognize I remember the caveman that mask. <laughs> yes of course yes bring back the caveman mask right <laughs> i'm a, i'm a total nerd about that stuff it was the top stone caveman mask. top stone made these really bad masks it was yeah yeah <laughs> and I my grandfather it. used to put this mask on because he was like the crazy wacky jokester mm -hmm. uh and chase us turn the lights off in the house and chase us around the house with the caveman mask oh on. i love that and then when he grabbed you he turned the light on under your face so it's like it yeah was, it was it was really terrifying because i was probably like five years old but it was also mm -hmm. super fun so i think maybe that may be where my wires got sort of crossed and but i don't know i've I felt like this is genetic to me it's always been in my family. Mm -hmm. uh, occultism has kind of always been in the family. My mother, my sister have always seen ghosts. Um, it, it was just like a normal thing. They mm -hmm. always had mm -hmm. that talent. So none of this stuff was weird to me. So that's also why I appreciate you doing, you know, leaning so heavily on the empirical stuff. Because it's not like that for most people. Most people... Yeah. I uh, don't believe it just frankly right right to me it's like what... oh sorry no i'm sorry no it's just it, to me it was like a part of life yeah and it was no big deal I'm not, I'm not sure why i'm so attached to empiricism i i spend a lot of time especially in daydream believer but other places as well writing about esp research which i'm a big advocate of and i'm mm -hmm. a big uh defender of and i really really try to go through and and sort it out and and rescue what i think has been damaged by by decades of terribly uh cynical and inaccurate criticism and this stuff has overtaken uh wikipedia and there's not a a, a hell of a lot any of us can do about it but you know it, it's natural enough to go onto wiki and look up or of 1812 and feel like you're going to get some reasonably accurate guidepost. <laughs> you go in and you put up esp research or jb ryan or precognition and 
you're not only getting articles that are suffused with unspoken partisanship, but they are referenced to sources very often from the same uh, publishing house or the same uh, den of magazines, uh, uh, Prometheus books and Skeptical Inquirer and some other things. You know, it's like you're you're sourcing your material explicitly to, you know, Fox News and Newsmax and such and right. saying, well, here you go, folks. <laughs> and so <clears throat> it's a big gap in, in, in on Wikipedia, but there's not a lot I can do about it. Um, right. But I, I can, in my own work, try to rescue some of this material and 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 tell the story in a way that I hope is 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 revelatory and revealing. And I use lots of notes because I want people to call me out. I want people to go to my mm -hmm. notes and see, am I exaggerating? You know, test me, test me, call me out. And <clears throat> I get very attached to, um, sometimes I'll get very attached to the persona of a certain person. And then from that, I will launch into uh, a body of ideas. So I got very interested in the figure of J.B. Rhine, who was the founder of the parapsychology lab at Duke University in the early 1930s. And J.B. was wonderful because he was one of the first hardcore academic mm -hmm. ESP researchers in the United States. And he really, I would say, really helped make parapsychology into a scholarly field. Obviously, there were there were there were foundations to that, you know, William James and Frederick Myers and a lot of other people. But JB really brought it onto the campus, got it funded, made it into a recognized academic field, took terrible criticism, a lot of it unfair. Um, and I saw him as this very solid stalwart figure who said, look, I'm going to tell the truth. I am going to design protocols intended to test for extra physical perception. And I will amass statistics, lay bare my sources, my methodology, throw open my door, literally, and my sources to skeptics, including to people who are overtly hostile to me, and I will tell the truth. And that's what JB ventured to do. And he he may have made some mistakes in his career, the chief among them being that he never, at least as long, I, I mean, life only gives us so much time. His health declined towards the end of his life, and he did not propose a theory of ESP, a, 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 a delivery system, a theoretical mechanism. And if you're gonna involve yourself in Western science, a theory is important. It's it's too important and it shouldn't mm -hmm. be, and it can feel like an injustice. But if you're going to go down that route, those are your in-laws and you, you have to deal with your in-laws at a certain point. And that's the call for a theory. He didn't do that, mm -hmm. um, but it was also part of his integrity. He felt like, look, I'm not a metaphysician. I'm not a philosopher, I'm a statistician and I'm going to amass evidence. And so, I was very turned on by him as an individual, and he became an intellectual hero to me. And so I suppose that attracted me to empiricism. Some of my friends uh, criticized me and say, you're too attached to empiricism. You will find much better examples of precognition, ESP, uh, telepathy, and so forth uh, through testimony. Um, and, and in fact, it's much like more likely to show up in moments of crisis or moments of passion than it is in the, the cold right. linoleum tiled white coat atmosphere of the laboratory. And I accept that and, and they're right, but I had to, I had to go down that path. I feel like, I suppose I get interested in ideas and themes because I feel like something is worth defending. And I felt like J.B. Ryan's legacy mm. was worth defending. And then of course i encountered other researchers, other clinicians 
who followed in his wake. And I came to feel that in many cases, uh, their legacies were worth uh, defending. So that's that's what led me into the lab. I think it's it's a it's a service, though, you're providing really for the, you know, the the whole uh, uh, study of ESP and, and things like that. I think that's because that's if anything's going to convince people to at least take a second look, it's it's you people like you saying, look at the empirical evidence, you know, for people like me, it doesn't matter. I mean, I find it right. interesting because it's like, I know it's true. So I like, I do like to read studies that kind of confirm that what I know is true, <laughs> but um, I think it's great for, it's really, I think it's important. It's important that you, that you include that in your work because, you know, anybody could write a book about, and many people have about uh, anecdotal studies and then you're kind of just preaching to the choir but you there's a like a a, when you have empirical evidence presented or you're able to present it you're potentially reaching a wider audience of people that don't really consider that or maybe people that are kind of on the fence you know and that's that's been my experience you know people who are on the path already believe in the extra physical have had experiences with the extra physical sometimes so they're persuaded uh, the hardcore skeptics, that's a psychological ecosystem yeah. all of its own that it cannot be reached. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like trying to convince a hardcore, you know, MAGA person that the election wasn't fake. You know, right. you'll never you'll never reach them. It's becoming an article bother. of yeah. faith. Yeah. But what I find the most exciting responses I receive are from people who are indifferent to the subject. I might be talking to a physician mm. or I might be talking to. I don't know, you know, just somebody from some walk of life who does not have a strong partisan feeling one way or the other. And they're like, no shit. And they might pitch tough questions at me, which is something I don't get from the skeptics. I want to debate the skeptics, but they are so dedicated to winning that they are the people who will flip over the chessboard if the game is going against them. Right. (laughs) And and this is all but literally true. And they will um, suppress or falsify stuff or just respond with rhetorical questions or snideness or they just they they they're proudly ignorant of the data you know <laughs> and um i i when somebody's proudly ignorant of data it's impenetrable it's yeah, simply impenetrable right. and there are problems in esp research and i need skeptics to make me better right. to challenge me but they've got to challenge me in ways that are real like the problems for example is there is a a huge problem with fraud in general in the social sciences. Parapsychology is part of the social sciences. Let's have a conversation about that. There are problems with arguably, arguably with small statistical samples. Let's talk about that. In meta-analyses, you know, meta-analysis sounds like a big fancy term for pooling data. There are a lot of different methods that are used in meta-analysis that are controversial, and we should talk about that. But an objection is not ESP can't be real because it can't be real. That's not an (laughs) objection, you know, but that's the beginning and the end of most intellectual of the depth, you know, and, and then there's cleverness and there's sarcasm and there's, Mm -hmm. you know, just in some cases out and out misrepresentation. And I simply don't, I reach the limits of my understanding of human nature in such situations because I, I don't want to win by fakery or by averting my eyes from something or by flipping over the chessboard. I want to be right, but I want to tell the truth more than I want to be right. Right. And, and for the skeptics, the professional skeptics winning becomes more important than 
than demonstrating. And that's the antithesis of rationalism, which they think they're defending. So it's very hard to find people to debate. Yeah, it's it, it uh, it's it's funny because I mean, what happens when that happens to them, though? You know, because oh, they might see. have the they might oh, have my God. Yeah. Because sometimes these things just happen randomly or they or they happen once in a person's life. You know, in, in my experience and uh, the professional skeptic, Michael Shermer, used to be a columnist for Scientific American. And I quote him a couple of times in Daydream Believer yeah, uh, in one instance where he talks about a um, tantalizingly paranormal episode that occurred in right. his life. I just read his, that last on night. His wedding day. Yeah. <laughs> But I've I've observed there's like this reverse habituation among the skeptics. They will in private and sometimes in public, sometimes in public, attest to something. And then when they go back into their peer group, uh, their heads get turned around. You know, they right. sort of get deprogrammed or whatever, <laughs> you know, and, and then they come back the next day. I was having a debate with a, a professor uh, somewhere and um, we were talking about these experiments called the Gonsfeld experiments. And a Gonsfeld is German for whole field or open field. There were a series of enormously persuasive uh, telepathy experiments in the 1970s and 80s. And in a in a once in a generation, maybe once in a century um, event, uh, a, a parapsychologist, lovely man named Charles Onerton, who's now dead, and um, a skeptic, a, a psychologist from the University of Oregon, Ray Hyman, uh, collaborated on a paper. And they said, look, uh, whether one believes or disbelieves in the ESP thesis, this data is unpolluted and it requires further research. And that's mm. all I ask. Let's keep the question alive. But the same skeptic later is asked about uh, experiments into precognition that Daryl Bem did at uh, Cornell mm -hmm. and other psychologists. And he says to the New York Times, it's craziness, just pure craziness. It's an embarrassment to the whole field. And it's like, do you know what language means? Pure craziness? You're sure that's the term you want to use? You know, it's like saying beneath contempt. Like how many right. things are actually beneath contempt? You know, you're sure that's the language you want to use. And and what happens is I was starting by saying that, that, that I was having this uh, contentious exchange with this professor. And he acknowledged to me on social media, so it's public. Yes, the Gonsfeld experiments are remarkable. And I'm like, dude, that's it. You don't need to sign on to my belief system. Right. You don't need to avow my belief system. The very next day, he reverses himself and goes, ESP isn't real. And and, and my <laughs> attitude is then there's nothing for us to, to debate because right. we've come to a place where you don't have to concede the ESP thesis, but you concede that the data is not polluted, the validity of the data. But then you completely reverse yourself the next day Again, I've hit my limits of human nature. I, I don't yeah. I don't understand that. So so it's very hard to find people to 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 have an authentic debate with. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, have you had any out of body experiences? Um, I'm not sure I've had out of body experiences exactly, but not in terms of shape shifting or a near death experience or anything or of that nature. Floating around <clears throat> after you fall asleep in that hypno hypnagogic state, you kind of start. I, I haven't personally had that. I have had very, very rare experiences, but enormously viscerally real and tactile of meditating. My practice mm -hmm. is transcendental meditation, a mantra based form of meditation, I have had experiences of feeling a complete disillusion of self 
absolutely mm. no sense of physicality whatsoever, no sense of proportion, no sense of perspective, mm -hmm. no tactile experience even. And it's been exquisite and scary, mm -hmm. and very, you know, <laughs> and you can't plan for it. It, yeah, it yeah. just, you know, it's very rare that it's happened and uh, maybe it'll never happen again. Maybe it'll happen this afternoon. Yeah. I had that one time I had that on uh, mushrooms because oh, uh -huh. I've taken psychedelics. That's, that's funny too. Cause um, the punk rock, uh magic time in my life like 1987 it was it was around the time of the remember the harmonic convergence of course yeah, yeah. that's that <laughs> spurred the whole thing for me it was like me mm -hmm. my friend and my another friend which became my wife got together to do a ouija board on the harmonic convergence wow. and that started this whole crazy path but um heavy yeah yeah other and, people have told me that have had such experiences during oh, that wow. time wow, yeah. wow yeah yeah and so um including the channeler uh, Paul Selig, whose works you may know. Uh, Paul's a very popular channeler, and and he had his first clairaudient experience during the harmonic. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Best um, I can remember. That, it was kind of like my spiritual puberty, I guess, is, mm -hmm. is the harmonic mm -hmm. convergence, because I started having um, out-of-body experiences right after like my physical puberty, <laughs> like around uh -huh. age 12, 13 is when I had my first out-of-body experience. And it's been something that happens all the time. I just had one two nights ago um, where I just, I get a, uh, uh, I start to fall asleep. I get this thing in my head that I can only describe as you, you, you it's, and I'm like, Oh no, I'm going to go out of body again. And I can't really <laughs> help it. And I, and I, and I just float. And unless I go, I, you know, from reading Robert Monroe, who's like a big uh, out of body study guy, uh, uh, one thing I really learned from him was if you say I'm going, I can see, or I want to move forward, or I want to go flying outside, you, you will do it. It's like, you have to think your way to doing things. You can't just do it. Like that mechanism isn't there that we have as physical beings where you just, you know, my, my arm, you don't have to think, I want my arm to go here and it goes here. You just go like that. And it right. doesn't work in that state. But, um, I've had, uh, I had that one experience of that kind of selfless thing. One time I've had all kinds of amazing um, mystical experiences on um, acid and mushrooms. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't really do it anymore. I'm like all about meditation now, but mm -hmm. I just don't feel the need to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. But um, I had one I had where, where my, I felt like it's like, it was so weird. Cause I took me and my friend took it. It was when we were working on, my the documentary this guy was making about me and we decided to have a trip and and discuss where the movie should go and the movie ended up being more about dark art than about myself because mm -hmm. we saw that's the way it was going and anyway 15 minutes after taking it which is very fast if you're familiar with psychedelics it's very fast to just kick in like that 15 minutes of of taking this i was like oh turn the light off i feel it coming on he turned the light off in the room and boom i was gone i, I was in total darkness but i was i could it's like it's hard to explain it was like i was not physical but i was my mind was so clear my mind was as clear i like to describe it as a lake without a ripple on it 
and I and, and I felt like I could think anything right now and probably get the answer for it, but I didn't even think to do that because it was so fleeting, you know, and shocking. That's wonderful. That's and wonderful. I, and I was talking to my friend. I'm like, "Are you experiencing this?" Which he wasn't, but my voice was very deep and resonant. It was very weird. I could hear myself, and it was kind of like it was coming from like this deeper place. And he's like, "No," and and then I started getting afraid that I was gonna like you know not come back and yes. then as soon as i did i was back in my body and my stomach was like oh i was having that these terrible mushroom pains in my stomach and uh, but it was it was it was profound it was really amazing it was really really amazing um i haven't had that with meditation yet although i have like locked i've, I've gotten the thing where your body kind of locks have you ever gotten that and it's like your body kind of feels numb yes yeah. yeah yeah like a total stillness and yeah it's almost like, like a sleep paralysis in yeah a way. yeah right yeah, right yeah uh anyway I, I wanted to i brought up the outer body thing because i that's been like you know it seems like people are born with natural pr proclivities to certain abilities you know mm -hmm. and yes i was never really good at uh premonitions although i've had a couple precognitive dreams that that came true for sure mm -hmm. that were you know weird but it was always out of body and it was visualization and manifesting or, or you know i like the way you talk about manifesting too as uh what you use a different term what's the term again uh, selecting yeah selecting and yeah. it's like that's but that's really been such a big change in my practice they just thinking about it like you're selecting a reality that kind of already exists and you're just like sliding sliding into it right it, it, that's the theory yeah it, it feels more natural to me it feels better it makes more sense but anyway um if i may add something oh, go for you've, it. you've sort of helped me come to something as you were talking about uh the psychedelic experience and the fact that we all seem to be born with certain proclivities towards certain experience and i that probably accounts for a lot of why i am so into empiricism yeah because right. I have, and, and I say this in a completely neutral way, I'm not proud of it, I'm not happy about it. In some ways, it's a barrier, but I have a very logical, very rational mm. mind. And I, I, I pursue my belief in study of the extra physical, both through experience, but also through what might be called logic or rationalism, right. which which attests, I think, to why I'm so interested in, in empiricism, you know, apropos of ESP research and so forth. And it also informs some of my writing on mind metaphysics, because one of the core methods in mind metaphysics is that you're supposed to enter the feeling state of the wish fulfilled. Right. And I honor that, but I experience difficulty with that sometimes. Right. So one of my one of my motivating exercises in Daydream Believer is to experiment with whether the wish itself is capable of enacting these extra physical agencies, these selective agencies of the psyche. So if the psyche can move freely among different intersections of time, and I feel, and I argue for this in the book, it's almost a, there's almost an imperative at the back of that based on everything we've experienced in different facets of both the sciences and the search over the past 150 years. I mean, again, these, this is just a line of demarcation that's a generalism, but I think it's it's almost an imperative that the psyche does have some extra physical capacity and unlocking that is something that I'm interested in coming at from a very simple, simple perspective. And I believe deeply in the possibility of very, very simple methods, which is why I'm so into new thought right. and mind metaphysics, 
if they're applied with absolute passion and absolute wanting. And so I've asked myself, and I explore this in the first chapter of Daydream Believer, whether a wish in and of itself may be sufficient to enact these mental capacities or psychical, I should say, capacities. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I speak more in terms of the psyche, which I see as a compact of thought and emotion. And I probably one of the reasons I have not gravitated more towards ceremonial magic, and I do participate in ceremonial magic, although my term for my personal practice is anarchic magic, because yeah, I, I believe that. in moving. Oh, thank <laughs> you. I believe in moving among all these worlds. But again, among the principles of ceremonial magic, I wouldn't call it an orthodoxy, but it's a principle. Right is that you perform the ritual and then you forget it. You know, you just forget all about that. And so you'll find that in chaos magic, you'll find mm -hmm. that in the work of Anton LaVey. And I have found I can't do that. Right. Uh, I can't make the ritual into a stand-in for the thing itself and I can't stop thinking about it. Right. My mind is always running. So I don't think that Mother Nature had just played this cruel cosmic joke on me or people <laughs> like me where, well, sorry, you know, no magic for you, you know. But I think that we just find different roads to Rome. We find alternative methods. And so part of my search has been finding personal techniques right. and methods that suit the nature of, of my mind, my psyche, which tends to be... Um, very hyper vigilant, hyper aware, hyper rationalistic. And, you know, rather than trying to force myself into a methodology that doesn't suit my temperament, I try to right. find these alternate methods. And this is apropos of what you were saying about how we all seem to be born with different proclivities. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, that's one of the things I thought that kind of blew my mind about your uh, about um, uh, daydream believers, the idea that, that the wish itself could be it. Do you remember that? Twilight Zone the, called the Wish. You, that yeah, was that with episode? the young boy who was friends with the boxer? Yeah, yeah. Where he goes, you got to believe. Yeah, you got yeah, to believe. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that the first thing I. That. That's the very first touched. thing I thought of because. Uh, oh, that's what? so funny because I think of that episode all the time, <laughs> and I've never written about it. So that's amazing. It's that's so, amazing. It, it's like, I was thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's so because uh, because uh, that episode always really resonated with me, but at the same time, I was like, oh, I wish it could be like that. That a wish could be real, you and, know, and maybe it could. You know, I, know, I, I encourage that experiment. I really, I remember that thing. vividly. That kid saying, "You know, the boxer's been defeated," and the kid is saying to the boxer, "Bowley, you've got to believe. You've got to believe." You gotta and believe. I thought, you gotta "How believe. do I?" Right. And I loved it because it's so simple. It's so yeah, simple. Right, right. And how how do I know? Again, it comes right. back to there are no shortcuts. Do I know that? Do right. I know that? Because what was encapsulated in that episode was, in a sense, the human wish. You know, we want to create. We're told that we're made in the image of the creator in Western scripture, or Hermeticism tells us as above, so below. So it stands to reason that the individual wants to create, wants to enact these causative powers. And that episode for me, I'm so stoked that you mentioned that because A, I haven't watched that in years, and B, oh, it, was it, it was running through my mind like crazy when I was writing that chapter oh, cool. and you just nailed it. <laughs> That's yeah. so cool. It's wild. Because the, 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 uh, I, I just thought the, the other thing that really, uh, lines up with your, um, the, your theories about how this stuff works and selective versus manifesting is in that episode. It's like, it, he goes back to, it's like he, he wins. And then he goes back to the, 
reality where he loses because he won't believe in the wish. Right. And it's like, right. it, it's, it's just funny because I remember watching that and, and, you know, I've seen it all my life, but watching it maybe five years ago and thinking, man, this is a really good episode that I never, uh, I don't know, not listed among the classics uh, that I, that, you know, most people do, right. Uh, but it's a really it's a- good one. And there's something about it. It's like, there was something about it that was, that hit me that like, there was some truth to it. I I, I felt the same way. And, you know, Rod Serling was such an interesting oh, yeah. guy because he grew up a Jew, converted to Unitarianism, yeah. was never explicitly supernatural. But in all of his stories, you know, he would explore these different themes as though to ask, what if? Sometimes in a nightmare way, mm-hmm. you know, so we get to serve man. And sometimes <laughs> in this idealistic way, you know, you've got to believe. And, right. and I feel like look, the man was just probing these human archetypal situations. Is it possible? What if? Where could we go very wrong? Where could we go very right? Yeah, I think, you know, any artist, writer, you know, anyone in the in the arts or a creative person has access to all of this. If mm-hmm. you get out of your own way and let your yeah. creative mind, you know, do the do the work, you know, basically as an artist, I, I feel that, you know, that the as a painter specifically, but I know that I'm sure this is true as a writer or any other mm-hmm. creative artist, musician is you, your job is to serve the art that you're creating. It's like, you're a servant to the art. And and, yes. you, and in a sense, that's why I've always kind of viewed um, art as my religion in a way, even though I'm very, I've always been very uh, God centered in a way. I've always felt very connected to what people would call God. Although, you know, I'm not like, you know, you, you can tell how I am. I'm cool. You know, I'm, I'm like, right. no, I dig. I I'm dig, not like you know? super Christian-y, but it, yeah, yeah. I'm kind of like, I, I feel like I, uh, I have a lot in common with you where you like, you talk about all the religions in the same way and you mm-hmm. find the wis- wisdom. And I think that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, just, like, you know, apropos of what you're saying, for, I'm sorry for the interruption. No problem. Like, um, as I moved away from uh concepts of god i still found myself really admiring the search of people who have those concepts including as we were talking about earlier people in the recovery movement and Mm -hmm. one of the great things that bill wilson did in in aa is that he directed the individual to seek a higher power as he or she understands it and i dig that enormously but I was still stymied by the term higher power because it's still very Abrahamic and and that's just not my way of thinking. So I've started to use the term uh, greater force relating Mm. to a greater force. And I feel that helps the individual who's looking for flexibility, find greater flexibility. Interesting. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a good idea. Uh, You know, I always say that my, my mom was um, a science of mind person. Oh Yeah. And, you know, and I was so weird because I was like, I didn't know, I didn't know any other families in my neighborhood that were into that. And even growing up, I hardly ever heard anything about science of mind. And I was like, Ernest Holmes, science of mind. It was like, I remember it. And and I remember my mom telling me about, you know, uh, things she learned during the services. And she taught me how to do uh, creative visualization is what it was presented to me. I love Ernest Holmes. Love him. Yeah. yeah. Where, where, Where did you grow up? Uh, San Pedro, California. Oh, right. You mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's wonderful. You know, I, science of mind helped open a lot of doors for me. Yeah. It was um, was exciting to see you mentioning it. 
because mm-hmm. I was like, oh, someone finally t- talking about science of mind. I felt yeah. like, you know, I felt like it was maybe it was some weird cult thing because I, I just right. couldn't find a lot of resources on it or other people that and, had similar you know, experience. There's another example of um, running away from from language. And I don't think people should run away from language. Uh, what used to be known as the United Church of Religious Science is now called Centers for Spiritual Living. And part of the reason for that change right. um, is that, oh, you know, people were confusing religious science with Scientology. And it's like, right. well, so what? Then, or then Christian just, science, maybe. Or Christian too, science. Yeah. Then just explain it to them. But right. don't don't run away from your history. You right, know? right. Yeah, I remember my mom talking about the, you know, these the plant experiments mm-hmm. where they where they plant meters up to plants and the certain yes. plants and they you know th- this is like in the 70s my mom telling me this stuff um she actually i, I talk about it in my documentary too uh she at one point said you know visualize jimmy my stepdad who's an, also a painter j- visualize jimmy selling a painting and that you could buy anything you want in the mall <laughs> and so That's i wonderful. did it and then like two weeks later he sold a painting like a big painting and so I went to the mall and I picked out this big metal blimp sculpture that was like a mechanical blimp sculpture. I still have it. Uh, it has these little bug-like characters, like wacky characters all ha- kind of hanging off the blimp. It was a weird thing for a nine-year-old to choose. and it, but, it was a, but it was like, so as far as I'm concerned, it was like from age nine, I was like, this stuff works. Anytime I needed money for plaster when I was learning to make masks growing up, I would visualize it and get the 200 bucks i needed out of nowhere and 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 there's so much this story is so beautifully instructive because i always tell people you can't fake your passions you have to have passions in play and in in daydream believer i have a chapter called the wish machine based in in part on the movie stalker and the novel it was based on roadside picnic and the wish machine in this paradigm it will read your passions and it will give you what you want. And it may feel very alienating <laughs> if you're not frank with right, yourself. Yeah. I mean, unembarrassed and deeply, deeply, profoundly frank. And so mom recognizes that to, to ignite your passions, dad sells a painting and then you can go to the mall and buy whatever you want, which is wonderful. <laughs> and in the spiritual culture, of course, you know, we get all like icky over this, like, oh, that's like, you know, spiritual materialism and what have you. And I don't buy that. Yeah. And I remember I do some work with the David Lynch Foundation, which teaches transcendental meditation to school kids. Mm-hmm. And one time they had a conference at a hotel here in town. I'm in New York City. Mm-hmm. And there were different kids, different high school kids speaking about their experience with TM. And one kid got up and he said, you know, I love video games and TM has made me better at my video games. I'm scoring higher. And I was like, right fucking on because so Mm -hmm. many people, so many young kids, especially video games are a fundamental part of their lives. And I loved that this kid was speaking so frankly, and that none of the organizers were trying to corral him in any way. Like, you know, it's right. not, oh, now I visualize world peace. It's like, no, I'm doing much better at God of war, you know? And I was like, right on, because right. he's telling, he's telling the truth. He's telling right. the truth. And it was beautiful. Yeah. 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 It's, I, yeah. I, it's, it's funny because I've been bringing this stuff up with my, I have two granddaughters, step granddaughters. Uh, wow. Yeah. Uh, 11 and 12, they're starting to get to that age where I can start you know, presenting right, this stuff right, to them. Right. I want to teach them. Right. And I was like talking to him the other day. I was like, you know, cause I taught them how to meditate. I know they don't do it, but I figure if I, 
I'm giving them the tools and if they're mm-hmm. into it, mm-hmm. they can do it. But mm-hmm. it was so funny because my older granddaughter's at that age where she wants to start buying clothes. Um, she's coming out of this childhood and she's going into adolescence and she wants mm-hmm. to buy clothes. And I'm like, you know, talking to her about magic. I could teach you how to do this stuff, how to manifest things. Yeah. And she's like, sounds boring. You know, it's typical, typical. Right, right. They have and to I, push back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I said, you could buy, you could visualize for money to buy clothes. And she was like, you can, you can. <laughs> she right, suddenly like, got really interested. It's like, if that's what it takes to teach her just the tools, to give her the tools um, to be able to, uh, have the life that she wants, you know, that's fine. I dig, I dig <laughs> that. I mean that, and, and again, you know, this is where I like to collapse these categories that we create within the spiritual culture, this idea that like, Oh, it's mass consumerism or what have you. Well, first of all, <clears throat> there's always been consumerism and there's right. always going to be consumerism. And for a kid, for an adult clothes are a, are, are uniform. They're an emblem. They tell the world mm-hmm. who, who you are. I don't tell a Tibetan monk, don't wear those robes. Right. You know, you're, you're too attached to, you know, that's part of, 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 of his or her sense of dedication. And I think that, that outward appearance, and I, I, I write really, really explicitly about this in the miracle habits and some other place. I think outward appearance, um, and the cultivation of outward appearance is is every bit as valid as what we call uh, inner development. Through right. outward appearance, the person is attempting to express his or her true self. It's not the adoption of a mask; it's the dropping of a right, mask right, in a, in a right. certain sense. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know we have this terrible hang-up within the spiritual culture, um, even though concurrent with that we all also pursue it you know everybody's wearing their uniform yeah, so to right. speak and <laughs> even if we, it's the slacker i don't give a shit how i look uniform that's still right. the uniform it's announcing <laughs> something to the to the outward world and i think that um we need to get down with the idea that expression is 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 a is a wholeness you know mm-hmm. it's not right. inner or outer and I think that an individual, through altering his or her outward appearance in whatever way is personally validating, can work enormous effects in a life that mm-hmm. we might not at first see. And I want people to feel very, very liberated in that option and not feel like, oh, I'm being unspiritual or something. Right. What, yeah, yeah. what would that mean? You yeah. know, what would that what would that mean? So you know, it's, 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 it's the cultivation of, of self in all its facets. Right. Yeah. That's a great point. I, I I'm at 1030 here. So I, or my time, so I, I don't, I want to be respectful. Feel free. I'm your totally time. digging it. Don't, you know, just, just, yeah. okay. <laughs> we'll, uh, we can do an encore set, you know, it's totally cool. Yeah. 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 So I, yeah. I definitely would love to have you on again too. For, oh, and I mean, sure. like just Any... here right now, you know, don't feel, don't feel pressured time-wise. I'm, okay. I'm totally, totally oh, digging it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. I did want, I wanted to uh, say one thing, you know, uh, uh, a number of things, but one thing I'm thinking of right now is that, you know, one of the things you bring up in your books about, you got me also really back into feeling the feeling aspect of, of your, uh, uh, you know, for your wish, you know, mm-hmm. really focusing on the feeling of it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> which is something I was more of a, 
um, uh, you know, uh, uh, affirmations guy, I guess, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, I, I, in fact, I don't think my mom even taught me the feeling part of it. It was more like focusing on the thing, imagining seeing it, imagining saying it's already there af- affirmations type stuff. But, and maybe she did, maybe she did, but I don't, but I remember focusing more on that stuff still. And it still worked for me, but <clears throat> you know, there may be, I was thinking that, uh, I know you said sigil stuff never really worked that well for you, which is, you know, not everything I, works. I, I for do everybody. use it. I do okay. use it. I just, I haven't had that, like, you know, parting the red sea moment. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I do believe in it and I yeah, do yeah. use it. I ha- yeah. I've, I've had, they've worked every time for me, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, I was wondering if I wonder since you, you bring up, like, I love the idea that prayer is a valid form when at times when you're not feeling it. When you're feeling yes. desperate, prayer is the only thing that that is mm-hmm. going to work. You know, you can't get, yes. you can't make yourself have the good feeling when you're bombing hard. Exactly. Yeah. But um, I was wondering if maybe sigils, uh, as a person that is able to forget them for some reason, I am like my mind. I've got OCD. My mind goes, but I am able to kind of forget my sigil stuff for some reason, or at least not really think about it. But I'm wondering if sigil stuff might function better for things that you don't aren't super passionate about, but you still want to manifest. Like I got to pay this bill in two weeks, but I don't, you know, I'm not, it's not exciting to pay this bill, but I do Mm. need money and I'm not sure where it's going to come from. So, you know, I can do this kind of dispassionate sigil for it. I think that's wonderful. So maybe the forgetting becomes less of a, it's not an issue because because you're not, super you, passionate about it it's more like a need that you need you know so i thought maybe, maybe that's, i love that i love that i'm gonna experiment with that i i love that oh, i love cool. that yeah cool. yeah yeah i just thought that you know that might be its place you know maybe yeah. that's that's how it works that's um, fascinating because i always go to the the full-on end with sigils you know and, yeah. <laughs> and, and 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 hence it's very difficult for me to <clears throat> walk away from the thing but if, <laughs> if 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 the thing is something that i'm not thirsty for like i'm parched right it, it could allow that forgetfulness and and permit a different process i think that's wonderful i'm gonna experiment with that. <laughs> oh cool I'll, cool I'll report back wow i'm honored um <laughs> <laughs> uh, and another thing i wanted to bring up too is that <clears throat> i completely i feel that i completely manifested my career mm-hmm. into being because when i started I knew there was no market for it. I I had no idea how I was going to make a living. I was painting something that wasn't popular. And um, but I, I knew I was good. I work hard. I work every day like you. Mm-hmm. I, I'm yeah. super grind. I grind it all the time. And um, <clears throat> so I did the work. I, I worked very hard at it. But on top of that, I was doing every night for months and months. I was doing the wish or doing the visualization or whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it hard mm-hmm. as I was going to sleep hard because I wanted this so yes. hard. Yes. It was, it was the thing I was like, cause I felt trapped in my job as much as, you know, making monsters for movies is super fun, but, mm-hmm. but I, it wasn't anymore. I just didn't, I didn't have the passion anymore. It's like, I wasn't able to, I wasn't being able to express myself, my true artistic vision. Um, but so I was, I would do it so hard and, 
and I got it exactly as I asked for it. And I didn't ask for the money too. <laughs> That's the thing. It's like, uh, I'm at a point where it's like, yeah, I, now I'm focusing on the money because I, I, I don't want to have to yeah. work this hard and always be doing it every month, pay, you know, coming up with the bills of the la- money for bills at the last minute. It's just not mm-hmm. fun. And the funny thing is my, when I was manif- working on manifesting this, I still had this hang up from my, about money that I really did get from my parents. Cause they were always broke. It was feast or famine, him as an artist. He got to do what he loved his whole life. They didn't have to work crappy jobs. Yeah. And so they did get that, but they had a hang up on money, which is something a lot of people from that era had, I think, especially spiritual people had a hang up on money. And I definitely inherited that. So, but the funny thing is, when I was doing the manifestation, it was to be a successful and well respected artist. Mm -hmm. But I didn't. I should have put a rich, <laughs> successful, because well, I am successful. I'm successful enough to make a living, which is amazing. Yeah. But but I have to work my ass off. I have to work seven yep. days a week all the time. I dig. And, I, and I'm I dig. good with that, but I just want a little more money. So it's not so I stressful. That's dig. it. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, I would offer this. I, I'm in the exact same position. I've had the exact same experience you just described to the, to the letter. Mm. And <laughs> it wasn't because I'm dismissive of money or anything like that it's just that it's always been secondary right right and so i tend to but i would also say this the you know passions don't lie and i think to enact the wish machine so to speak (laughs) you have to feed it with passion and Mm. it will give you back that which you're passionate about and there's no lying emotions don't lie and so i think one has to allow you know, you have to sort of let your freak flag fly in terms of <laughs> this process and go with what you wish for. And then money can also be added on to that. I don't think the door is closed. Mm-hmm. But I would also say for, for for me, certainly, and perhaps for you, that circumstance has driven me to work so I, much. I think and that I, too. <laughs> yeah. And I do it out of passion. But I get better and better. I'm a better and, writer today than I was two years ago. Right. You know, I say I, I, I say this all the time. As much as I bitch about not, never having enough money and this capitalist system's a killer and this and that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has pushed me. I've got a t- a huge body of work behind yeah. me. I've that I can use to make money from. I mean, I've got I've so many. I've done a lot. Even our uh, painters are like, man, you paint a lot. And anybody that knows any that that it's good at any craft you have to do it over and over and over to get good at it so it really that um necessity pushed me to create a ton of work and make me a way better painter but at this point i'm ready for the money (laughs) oh and that's (laughs) that's 100 legitimate so there could be revision you know there could be revision in in your process and um, William Blake wrote, opposition is true friendship. And there's so mm. much within that. Right, right. And, you know, I have this anthology called Uncertain Places coming out in October. Yeah. And I'm super proud of it. But I'm a better writer today than I was when I completed a lot of the pieces that have gone in there. And I look at it, I'm like, fuck, if only I had included Painted Black, you know. Right. But it's like, <laughs> well, there'll have to be another anthology right. and and so forth. But um, you see that that sweat equity nets results. And you become a better artist in, in, in whatever your, your your medium is when you work and work and work, just like a martial artist or an athlete mm-hmm. or a dancer or what have you. And 
the sweat equity is such a payoff, and it may be that that became the bridge of incident that allowed you to become outstanding at your art. You know, the 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 one of the driving passion, absolutely, uh, the wish for expression, absolutely, but also the need for resources, mm. and the need for resources means like I'm going to work constantly, <laughs> and surprise, you get better constantly, yeah, also. True. So yeah, opposition is true friendship, and. So it helps. It helps. You know, that's the medium. That's the means through which your excellence was refined. And I found that in my life. But I have exactly the same situation. And it may just be that, well, if you really feel it passionately, and again, the emotions will tell the truth, uh, there can be revision. Yeah. Yeah. That's sort of that's what I'm working on now. And it has it's yeah. like since I started, it has been getting better. That's great. Uh, financially. So I'm just not That's at a great. Yeah, it's yeah. great. It's it's amazing. It's great. Uh, I'm just, you know, I'm not quite. You want to buy that <laughs> thing at the mall. You want to. Yeah, I want to put I want to put a model or, you know, <laughs> I want to so, put I want to put a yeah. roof on my house is what my roof is falling apart. My house needs painting. It's like necessity stuff. You know, it's like. I, yeah. I so it's it's really like I don't you know, I, I just want to paint, be with my wife see my grandkids it's so simple what i want but it's like i need money i'm in california you know it isn't absolutely York. it costs a lot of money you know so it does i have two kids i raised you know one just went off to college yeah, ex- and once you have very kids, real forget it man it's very like real. it's expensive yeah. so For real. For real. I, I i really uh did i got over my issue with money so uh mm-hmm. and it's funny because my sister was never like that she's the one person in the family that always did really well with money and yep. she was the rebel and the one that all the problems got blamed on because she wouldn't take any shit between, you know, all the stuff that was going on between my mom and my dad. She sort of got like scapegoated, but mm-hmm. she was like this independent, you know, <laughs> she would never accept this term, but she was the satanic one <laughs> as yeah. far as being like the one that stood up, left yeah. home early, made a bunch of money, had the confidence yeah. in herself, regardless of everybody giving her shit for being a bad kid when she wasn't really so it's it's interesting it's it's, interesting. it's funny we're like doppelgangers because i had an older sister oh, who really? was the same way I'm telling and you. today you know she has like three homes and everything and and i i i i had a more ambivalent feeling you know at age 17 than she did and you know we both looked at our childhood circumstances and realized our parents would not be able to support us into adulthood mm-hmm. so we took different paths you know she went to law school and you know i became a historian of the occult not traditionally <laughs> your path to financial security um but um but but we both responded to those circumstances differently and it was only as i got older that i realized uh that i could really honor and admire her approach because right. it, it was really successful and necessary yeah 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 absolutely yeah. um you know the reason i was bringing up the out of body thing is kind of getting back to uh i've had these i've had out of body experiences that were amazing and mm-hmm. felt like like one one i had uh one of my first my first one was terrifying and where a figure was standing next to me so weird uh heavy set guy with a a down vest like a trucker mm-hmm. and a flannel shirt kind of heavy set holding a pillow over his face like holding it by one corner in front of his face so i couldn't see his face and then he kept hitting me with it mm-hmm. and putting it back up it was so mm-hmm. st- and i was just like i got the dread that this the feeling of existential dread and i couldn't get out of it and there but there was a voice in my head saying he could only scare you he can't hurt you 
Mm, I kept right. saying that over and over. And I was like, but still, I was terrified and I was able to pull myself out of it. And then I'd had another one a few years later where it felt like, oh my God, this is what happens when you die. This feels so good. I feel like my true self without any emotional baggage. And later as an adult, I tried ecstasy and it felt exactly like that. That's wonderful. It was so weird. And this is, you know, this was when I was a kid before I'd done any drugs or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the thing is, it's like I've always it's usually either kind of like sort of scary and not uh, sort of scary and out of control. Or I'm sort of floating around and I have a hard time getting my bearings. But sometimes I've had a couple where they're like, have you seen that movie, The Nightmare, the documentary? No. Oh, you have to watch it. You have to watch it. It's called okay. The Nightmare. It's all anecdotal stuff about um, people having out-of-body, hypnagogic state, sleep paralysis, out-of-body okay. experiences. It's totally related to all, all of our stuff, occultism. Cool. But um, most of the people don't have a clue about occultism. But, mm-hmm. you know, you'll watch it and you'll be like, oh, okay. <laughs> but um, uh, I've had a lot of scary ass ones you know where i've seen entities and you get this sense of existential dread like a terror i I refer to it as like a spiritual terror it's so deep that you know before i started having these my mom was again science of mind a white lighter very positive to a fault really you know like where she wasn't maybe she wasn't addressing her issues where Mm -hmm. she had issues from her dad and stuff Mm-hmm. But everything was rosy. Brady Bunch, you know, that's stuff we grew up on. Uh, but really a great person, really nice person. Anyway, um, so I grew up not believing there was evil in the world at all. It was just wasn't a thing. It, it, it was all good. And, but it's like going into these states, I've encountered these entities that are definitely for sure evil. Like you mm-hmm. feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The most recent one I had was not long ago. There was a I got in that hypnagogic state. There was this big, the shape of a lump that was invisible, but I knew Mm -hmm. where it was. And it was an old lady's voice cursing at me in like, I thought Romanian or Russian. Mm -hmm. And she was Mm -hmm. pissed. Mm -hmm. She was pissed. And it was, she was cursing. Like, and I knew she was cursing, although I didn't understand language. She started coming around to my side of the bed. And it was really scary. And I was able to pull myself out of it. And the first thing I thought of when I woke up was Baba Yaga. And then I thought my rational mind is like, no, you're, you saw Hellboy. You saw the new Hellboy, you know, a year ago. And you're probably thinking Baba Yaga. And so I was, you know, I was just being overly rational about it. Then as I started telling my a friend of mine about it and thinking about it, I was like, okay, that was like an Eastern European or Romanian accent, I'm pretty sure, or Russian. And so I looked up Baba Yaga and that's like, Baba Yaga is from like Eastern Europe. It's an Eastern European myth. Mm -hmm. And so it's like that Baba Yaga was like cursing at me (laughs) in this. And it was, you know, I know it's, it wasn't like a dream. These states are not like a dream. It's different than a dream. I've had weird dreams. I've had lucid dreams. And, uh, and that was one that I just had recently. I don't know why it was completely random, but I guess the point I'm getting at is now that you've you're re uh, 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 orienting yourself to where Satan is not the the god of all these people or these right. entities. What 
what's the what's the new satan what's yeah, the right. real what's the real satan uh what's hypocrisy real... <laughs> hypocrisy <laughs> right. you know i mean i was just saying to my partner the other night you know i can't tell you the number of times um that like a new age center for example has ripped me off has mm. has committed to uh paying me for something taking care of travel taking care of an expense and then gone back on its word i mean there are places i won't speak anymore because mm. of that very thing and yet these places are all populated with white light people who will <laughs> talk to you about like you know the environment and global right. warming and spiritual activism and i hate trump and blah 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 and it's like well you know you can't do anything about any of that stuff, you know, this afternoon at two o'clock, but you could certainly pay someone to whom you owe money or something, you know, whatever <laughs> right. it may be. Um, or if you say you're going to show up on time to help somebody move or whatever it may be, you know, do so, do so. Or, you know, maybe you're acting out of spite and you can tell yourself, you know, it's not spite, it's justice, it's goodness, you know, which we're wonderful at. Right. Everybody is so wonderful at, at, at seeing their perspective as, 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 as something that's, that's, that's morally necessary in the world. And yet it could be hurting another person. It could be hurting surrounding people. Usually the whole mark of that is the urge, the need, the impulse to tell people what to do. I hear from people either politically or religiously who always tell me, you know, hey, man, you know, I'm filled with love and peace. I just want to tell you this one thing. And then if they tell me and I don't sign on to what they're saying, they progressively get angrier and angrier <laughs> and their tone changes right. because they don't want to be heard they want to be heated and that's the dividing line that's the difference and if you look at our world today i mean people will ask me well don't you think there are like dark forces in the world you know using the term dark in a certain way mm -hmm. that i don't use it but i know where they're saying and and i say to them yes you know i'm not trying to be a wise guy and i'm not trying to be a smart ass dark forces are somebody sitting in a cubicle with a headset on with their little nice class pictures or the picture of a rainbow that their kid drew tacked up in the cubicle, <laughs> denying your healthcare claim, right. denying you coverage that you've paid for, right. that you're entitled to and that you need. And of course, this goes on all the time. I mean, our health insurance system in this country is set up to deny claims. I mean, yeah, this right. vast <laughs> edifice is set up to deny claims. And when somebody is sick, they're going through terrible, terrible stress. They haven't got time. And these companies know that people haven't got time yeah. to sit it's, on the phone. It is. It's evil. It's, it's evil. evil. You're yeah. getting lied to. Yeah. You're being forced to resubmit claims, even though the paperwork is there. Every you know coding uh, 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 procedure is used to invalidate your claim. And so not only are you the individual being denied coverage for which you've paid, but you're being put through terrible stress at a time right. when you or somebody that you love is sick. So it seems to me that uh, Hannah Arendt talked about the banality of evil. It mm -hmm. often shows up in episodes of banality where it's just these everyday things where people feel utterly at liberty to lie, to rip somebody off, to be invasive, to be coercive, to exclude someone, to dehumanize someone. 
um, the other day, you know, well, not the other day, it goes way back a bit. <clears throat> I was on a, a, um, a podcast uh, with somebody who uh, he very selectively edited the thing afterwards. He starts coming at me with all this satanic panic stuff. Oh, no, no, really? Him, yeah. And I said, do you realize that the news coverage that you're coming at me with is literally a generation old? You're coming at me with stuff from 1989, from 1990 that has all been yeah. diametrically disproven sometimes right. by the people who were children who were coerced into making right. some of these that, false that, statements. That's sometimes, a good example of evil yeah, is the satanic panic It's a panic perfect people. example. <laughs> and he thinks he's doing the right thing, you know, right. sometimes by cops who said, shit, I was wrong. I, I got sold on this bill of goods by this specialist in the occult. Right. And, you know, we thought these heavy metal kids were, you know, I mean, Damien Eccles, you know, look what happened to him. I know. Um, look what happened. You know, I, I, I have another friend, you know, who was, who was framed for a murder out in the Midwest, spent 10 years in jail. The man's completely innocent. Oh, He's now God. released. But it's like, look at people who think they're enforcing something positive, but are just trying to score a win. And so I'll have somebody coming at me. I mean, the satanic panic, all this fraudulent stuff about abuses committed by daycare workers and your local yeah. librarian who wears a pentagram or something. Yeah. Pre-QAnon. I mean, pre-QAnon and, and unfortunately coming back I know, through QAnon I know, I know. and, you know, down to the granular details, absolutely false. And yet at the same time, there's abuse going on within the Catholic Church, abuse going on within the Boy Scouts of America, right, right. not just here, but in Europe as well, it's all crazy, over the world. Man. It's crazy. And, 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 and we're framing, you know, librarians and heavy metal kids and daycare workers right. who are just trying to get by on a, you know, near minimum wage paycheck. And, you know, I've got people now and then who come at me with this stuff and they seem completely unconcerned that the people, some of the people who actually were some of the primary players in this have come back and said, I am so sorry I fucking did this. Right. This was horrible. Some of the kids, you know, and there was, and this news coverage ain't hard to come by. You just have to be interested. Right. And so I guess the point I'm making is that never is so much evil perpetrated by people who are just absolutely convinced that they've got the right idea and they're going to correct yeah. something <laughs> and they can't fathom the humanity of the person that they're talking right. to or about. So because they can't, um, they're persuaded all the more that they can because they don't experience any gap there. And so you have that. And then you have the banality of people just following different procedures. I mean, I've had organizations that profess to be exponents of expanding human consciousness who take your invoice and it just falls to the bottom of the pile again and again and again. <laughs> doesn't matter to them yeah. that the individual has groceries to buy kids to feed kids to school you know they just feel at liberty uh to not pay their debts and boy if you want to drop on something valuable from abrahamic tradition there's a line in the talmud where well it's not a line it's a passage where a master is asking a group of students what is evil and the students all have different answers and and they're very good but one student says, um, evil is having a debt and not repaying it. And the master goes, I approve of your words because everybody else's words are, are, are enfolded within yours. Think of that broadly defined. What are my debts that I'm not repaying? Think of that on many different levels. And that is what this particular Talmudic dialogue classified as evil. Mm -hmm. So I've always been, uh, that says always been a kind of a North Star to me. Yeah. I guess the point I I I'm making is 
or what I'm coming to myself while talking to you about this, because um, I, I never classified those evil things in my experience, experiences, those evil feeling things, whatever they are, the entities mm-hmm. or whatever. I never connected that to the devil or Satan. I just never. Likewise. It, Likewise. It never seemed yeah. like. So, so I, I ultimately, I guess what 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 you're doing with this your your uh, this brand of Satanism is, it's more like breaking the hierarchical structure more than anything, yes. and viewing, because you're because you're also a practicing magician. You you know I know you've talked about uh, making offerings to like Minerva and different, you know, so it's like it's more like putting these things on the same level. Or not having a hierarchical structure. And then what we do with these weird, scary entities are that they are just weird, scary entities on their own that we don't really understand. It's not so much. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's like the Internet. You know, I mean, how is it different? You know, I, I see people go online. They're using pseudonyms, of course, and they you know, insult other people, ask rhetorical questions, they're sarcastic, right. they talk trash constantly and all day, and they get a tremendous charge from this. Yeah. And um, and to me, uh, uh, life is physical, life is extra physical. We go into these realms all the time. One may be digital, another may be right. an intersection of time or an extra dimension. And there's beings there that are damned unpleasant and 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 it may be that the majority of humanity is damned unpleasant you know i mean wars are fought fought because we want to tell other people what to do and we want other people's stuff and it's about that complicated and (laughs) you know it doesn't occur to anybody that well you could pursue your own conception of happiness without telling another person what to do or without taking another person's stuff and the majority of the human race, based upon uh, what's going on on any given day, seems not to grok to that. So why would it be different in these uh, other right. intersections of time that that we're going to meet entities right. that are profoundly unpleasant and yeah, makes sense. Yeah, may makes threaten sense. us, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's always it's it's always been though. They the message to me has always been they can't hurt you. They can just yeah. scare you. It's always that. Like, I know yeah. they can't, but you still feel the fear. So, it's... Well, there's a certain meaningful risk also that one has to take. You know, I think I, I write somewhere that the readership, I think this is an uncertain place, is the readership that I serve is authentically searching and willing to take meaningful risks, you know, because I've mm-hmm. had, right, um, right. I, I remember, you know, as I began to embark on my own conception of the satanic, I thought to myself, I'm not going to dismiss and brush off the concerns of a whole swath of humanity. You know, maybe I am wrong, but I have embarked upon this. I am diving into the deep end of the pool and I am willing to shoulder that. I am willing to shoulder that. I am prepared to take that risk for my search. That's a decision that I have no right to make for anybody else, but that, that I made. Yeah. And that's the thing. That ends up. Be, that's the maybe. That's the purpose of that of that adversarial thing, or mm-hmm. making that claim, and even just making that. I had one time. I had a a, a, a trip vision, and this is still in the uh, hierarchical sort of God framework. But it, it was like I saw this. It was all cartoony too. It was really weird. But I saw this castle, like a creepy castle. 
with a bunch of lightning coming like it was like there was light flashing behind the castle and it was all kind of purples and dark blues and i had this thought that the light is god and the castle has a bunch of monsters out front which mm-hmm. are demons basically mm-hmm. and the demons are there to uh scare the people off who don't have the courage to try to get to god like if you if you don't have the courage or you don't have the whatever to to go all the way you don't you don't get to see god you don't mm-hmm. do, it's like you haven't earned it if you're not mm-hmm. willing to fight to face the demons that are there they're they're mm-hmm. there for that reason you know they're not like a separate thing from god they are god's thing put there to keep out people who aren't ready to experience god and you know i would add mean? to that yeah of course and i would add to that that in genesis 3 the serpent in the garden who is you know centuries after the fact conflated with the satanic but i think as part of the human parable i'm accepting of that um and the serpent in the garden tells eve the truth right you you, you've been you've been placed into this you know lovely little aquarium here where all your needs are taken care of he was right Right. <laughs> exactly. And there's this uh, tree in the garden, tree of knowledge of good and evil, which may be the same tree as the tree of life. Right. It's a very interesting thing that some biblical scholars debate. Mm-hmm. And you've been told you can taste from every tree in the garden, except the one that will give you the, the, the capacity for measurement, except the one that will give you the capacity for, for self-knowledge, for inner reflection, for construction and creativity and eat from it. You're not going to die. You'll actually gain awareness. Eve eats from it without coercion. Adam eats from it and they're expelled from the garden and friction is brought into their lives. But, but how would we have creativity without friction? How would we have creativity without pathos? Humanity wouldn't be itself. It wouldn't be worthy of its name had it not been for the expulsion from the garden. So I right. I look at that parable very, very differently. And that, in many ways, was the beginning of this leg of my journey. Yeah, it's like, you know, graduating from animals to humans, human higher thought, it seems like a, 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 a parable. We weren't really human if you, if you abide by the terms of that parable. There was the right, sameness. Right, right, right. How were we human? You know, right. if we didn't have to till the land, if there was no pain in, in, in birth, if there was no pain in the act of generation, if there was no metallurgy, if there was no nothing, you know, um, there's one um, uh, kind of fallen archangel in scripture who's maybe it's. Um, oh. The name is suddenly escaping me. Um, Enoch, who's said to have taught metallurgy, you know, to humanity. Well, you know, you can make weapons, you can make jewelry, you right. can make any number of things, and and friction and choice are the human situation. And without friction, there would not be creativity, nor would there be necessity. Again, opposition is true friendship. Humanity would not be itself without the expulsion. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so your form of Satanism is honoring that force exactly. What for exactly. With which out we wouldn't be shit. Exactly, <laughs> we just be animals. We wouldn't be thinking. Right. Yeah, right. So. Kept animals. Right, you know? right. Yeah. <laughs> that's the thing. I I love that in, in the book. Whenever you say that, it's like, you know, the snake was right on all counts. He was like right. Everything he said was true. How is that bad? That's my perspective. And these <laughs> things work their way into the parable, you know, right. of the human story. I mean. 
you know, one could then <clears throat> debate what truth is being shown to us here, what's being right. exposed to us here. It doesn't mean that I reject scripture. I go into scripture and I say, I have a reading of this. I have a reading right. of the Bhagavad Gita. I have a reading of the Tao Te Ching. I have a reading of the Dhammapada. You know, this is part of the human story that we set down. And the individual has to navigate through that story in a mature way. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to be respectful of your time and let you go now, but because <laughs> I know it's getting to, to, to two hours now, but hopefully you'll come back on again. If you I'm have delighted, man, you, absolutely. You've, you've always got an open invitation. I if totally you, dig it. Thank let, you. Let me know when your new next book comes out. Cause I'd love sure. to be on to promote it. Any, absolutely. Any, and any other time too, but um, uh, don't hang up after I end the call or after I end the recording. Cause I have to ask you something and then, Deal. And then the final thing we do at this podcast is we say goodbye to the audience at the end. So just say goodbye, okay. audience. So, Be happy to. Okay, there you go. Say goodbye, audience. <laughs> goodbye, <laughs> audience. Okay. Oh, are we there? Is we are the... there. <laughs> goodbye, audience. Of... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a terrible. Day. I thought I was prepping. You know, it's, it's like a... so. Don't forget that. You know. <laughs> So, <laughs> no, this is all part of the podcast. Yeah, this is well, I appreciate it. I mean, really, this conversation flew by. Yeah, uh, I, you know, the time flew by, and um, we'll talk next time about how there is no time, and oh, so yeah, yeah, we can I, expand on that. But, but I loved it. I really loved it. Oh, Thank I appreciate you. it. I appreciate it. Okay, I'm gonna. Uh, we're gonna say. Okay, let's do it now. Goodbye, audience. Goodbye, audience. <laughs>